Welcome to the Tightly Coupled Book Club. I'm Aji, joined by my impishly charming half, Mina. Hello. For this episode, we read chapters 5 through 9 of Active Record Migrations in the Ruby on Rails Guides, version 7.0.5. Burning question, Mina. Did you learn anything that surprised you? I did, as always. And it's not really a new thing that I learned that surprised me. What surprised me was I found that I want to revisit and revise my answer to your question from last episode about deleting old migration files. All right, hit me with it. I think I'm for it. So I'm going to repeat back what I heard, and I want you to confirm if this is correct. Previously, you were again it. Now you're for it. Okay, previously I was cautious because if I remember correctly, my answer was, well, what if you need to run it again? And after reading these chapters and understanding the emphasis that these guides have put on the idea that the schema file is the source of truth for what your database looks like, I would like to revise that answer to, I think it's okay to delete old migration files. In fact, I might be for it. Okay, so to revise, you didn't have much of an opinion either way, <laughs> but now you're for it. I guess it's not as much of a revision then as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm for it. This is one of those opinions that is new, right? Like this is one of my new opinions that came about or changed between last episode and this one. And so I would like to talk over what each of us might think is a benefit or downfall of deleting migration files and see if we can help me solidify whether it's a way I would like to go. Sure, that's a great thought. So I think I was pretty similar to you uh, before reading these sections that we did this time, that I didn't have too much of a strong opinion either way. Uh, I had heard that it was a good practice, but hadn't seen it implemented too much. I think I'm in the camp of being pro-deleting older migrations now. Where I kind of got convinced was because older migrations might drift from where the application exists right now, especially if there's been a Rails upgrade or different things like that, despite the kind of versioning that the migrations file does that we talked about before. The possibility of old migrations failing if you're relying on application code or all these different reasons that that might happen is something that could be argued that you would catch that in code review. To that, I say... No, you won't. Maybe you will 95, 98, 99% of the time, but that's not how humans work. Sometimes things are going to get through. Code review is not perfect. And if you can remove that by, after a certain point, deleting old migrations and ensuring that you're using schema load, then that can just remove a point of failure in your process. And anytime you can do that, anytime you can rely less on squishy human brains remembering to do a thing and offloading it as close as possible to the computer doing a thing, I'm definitely for that. Speaking as a squishy human myself. That's very self-aware. Yes, squishy humans make mistakes and you're saying that you want to kind of offload decision making as much as possible from human beings. And I don't know, one of the benefits maybe I saw for deleting the migrations was maybe in the end similar to your point, the fact that the Rails guides recommend when you set up a brand new database for an existing project, usually probably in either a new environment or in development mode to use schema load rather than running all of your migration files from the beginning of history of your project to catch up the state of your database. So when you clean up your migrations in the file system, it kind of forces you to load the schema rather than run historical migrations because historical migrations don't exist in that world. 
Yeah, for sure. It's sort of removing what might be considered not a best practice by just removing the possibility of doing it all together. It's like you can't run DB migrate and have your whole database if your migrations aren't there. If we think about it again, using a Git repo as sort of the metaphor and bridge to understanding migrations like we did last time, when you clone down a new repo, you clone down its current state, right? You match it to the head on main. You don't bring down the first commit and run all of the commits on top of that, right? How can you imagine? You want to take the current version that is acting as the real thing. You don't want to try and build it up from the beginning when you've got the current state as it exists as a whole. And that's kind of similar to loading from the schema because this is where you're at, whereas that historical reference might be interesting or useful in understanding the journey of the application. It's not as useful for actually running or building the application. Yeah, I agree. Something that stood out to me here in section five, changing existing migrations, it made two points that sort of stood out or resonated to me. First of all, it mentions the fact that if you want to edit a migration that you are currently working on, you will need to roll back your migrate before you can edit that. Otherwise, Rails won't know how to roll it back to work on your new changes and push forward on that. And that is just something that I always forget. I think I mentioned that before. It just always happens and I have to undo, roll back, go forward. So I appreciate that that's in there. Hopefully not as many people fall into that trap as I do. And the second thing that it said, maybe a little less personally frustrating. I liked the way that they talked about editing old migrations and the fact that you don't want to do that. The way they framed it as editing a freshly generated migration, which is not been propagated beyond your development machine is relatively harmless. It was the thought of propagating beyond my machine. Like, has this been picked up by other places? Is this in main? Or has this been run, especially has this been run on deployed environments? Don't touch those anymore. They are solidified. Yeah, to your first point about rolling back when you're in development for a migration, I know we talked about last time that part of my development process or workflow includes running DB rollback every time I run a migration when I am working on a new migration or new migrations. But I I really hate to admit this, but I really also fall into the trap of forgetting to roll back, even though it's that like migrate then roll back, then migrate again is already part of my workflow. I still, when I need to make changes into a migration file to kind of edit one, edit a new one that I've been working on, I still forget to roll back. And then you have to go and like stash all your changes roll back, apply all your changes again, and migrate again. That really should be an alias command. If you come up with a Zish function or an alias or something like that that can handle that, I would definitely be interested. Yeah, I think the logic for that maybe is fairly straightforward because you just want to check your Git status, see if one of the changes includes a migration file, then maybe roll back and apply when you run migrate. That's famous last words with shell scripting though, isn't it? It's like, <laughs> this seems straightforward. And then you're 12 pages deep into SED's documentation and you don't know what's going on. And and also to your second point about not editing old migrations, I feel like that is one of those core points that has been ingrained in my developer instinct to never do that because I've seen too many projects or too many people burned by either themselves or other people on their team forgetting and going ahead and editing migrations that have already been run on deployed environments that I feel like I have learned from maybe other people's mistakes. How do you feel about that? I'm not sure where I first heard that 
piece of advice or that sort of Rails axiom that you don't edit old migration files that have already been run. I agree that that is something that's just one of those foundational pieces of knowledge, but it also kind of brings up to me the point that we've talked about before, that Rails implicitly has this tribal knowledge component to it because there is so much convention over configuration that you can't know it all all at once from the beginning and you kind of have to run into it or hear it from someone or read about it and so these fundamental things that we think are kind of an underpinning of the rails way might not be in the heads of everyone out there writing rails at the top of 6.1 the section here the guides read migrations mighty as they may be are not the authoritative source for your database schema your database remains the authoritative source. And it also mentions that schema files are useful if you want a quick look at what attributes an active record object has. And I find that will often pop up in schema.rb if I want to know what columns are available. It's sort of the reference page for the data structure of my application. Do you do that too? I do. It's in fact probably at least first or second, if not the very first file I open when I am going into a brand new Rails code base. The other one being maybe routes. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially the combination of those two, seeing how they overlap, where they don't. It really gives you a nice picture of what's important to the way that this application thinks about what it's doing. Yeah, and I know that we have talked a lot in the past about how there are two things that are inherently important when you are building a software product. And those two things are your data and your users. And I think that just kind of the way that sometimes software tasks and teams are divided up, whatever their jobs might be, be it product management or designer or developers, a lot of people don't often think of both of those things at once. I think you're onto something that folks who are more interested in the back end are typically more interested and excited about the data side of things. And so that's their sort of entry point. And then folks that like working in the front end might be thinking more closely about user interactions. And so that's their entry point. And really, it's where those two meet is where the magic happens. Where I had been the most satisfied or fulfilled on a project, thinking back on, you know, the entirety of my half a decade in consulting was when I was a developer who was involved in requirements gathering and helping to define what sort of product that we are building and turning some real world user interaction into code or into data model is a space that I think that I really enjoyed being because it forced me to think about both of those components, both the user and the data. And like you said, it's where those things intersect is where the magic happens. And there's a discussion on our team, Mission Control at ThoughtBot right now about how to relate something like site reliability engineering, which a lot of people think of as something that happens in the back end and in collecting metrics and interpreting those metrics and how to relate that thinking closer to the user facing portion of your software product. We're trying to figure out how to incorporate product designers into our site reliability engineering practices and I was in a session where we had SREs and designers sit down and kind of learn about what each other did and ask each other questions about what we did and trying to sort of find a common ground about where we can collaborate, where those Venn diagram intersect. 
We sort of talked about this before that a lot of our early experiences in programming were coming from Rails. And so our point of view of how to build an application is very influenced by the Rails way. And our understanding then of databases is going to be very much influenced by the way that they mentioned it in the guides is the active record way which claims that intelligence belongs in your models and not in the database. There was some reference there, and I'm sure that there are many features of the databases that I use every day that I have never come across or heard of because my focus is so much in the application layer and is coming so much from that Rails-centric point of view. It brings up a point that I think a lot of people talk about with Rails is, does it in some way get in the way of you learning about these fundamental things, right? Because it allows you to not have to think about those, can that be detrimental in some places? That's definitely a thought I had had as well, especially the section where it mentioned how your schema files can be generated in Ruby or in SQL and how they recommend setting the config to generate your schema in SQL if you are using database features that the migration DSL doesn't support. Things like triggers, sequences, or stored procedures were the ones that the guides had mentioned. At the time, while I was reading and making notes, I had thought, oh, the fact that Rails doesn't handle those features of your database makes it so that if I'm writing strictly Ruby code or Rails code, I'm never even going to really know about them or what they are. But then as I was reflecting on the notes, I thought, well, one of the benefits to Rails is it lowered the barrier to entry into web development in the first place by abstracting over some more commonly used features of your database in this specific scope that we are speaking in right now. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe that means that if I'm faced with a problem that database triggers is the best solution for. I actually don't know what triggers are, so I don't know what use case that might be. But let's say I have a use case for whose solution is database triggers. Then at that point, I will go and learn about it and try to figure out how to do it. It's like, I'll learn it when I need it. Exactly. It's that concept of rather than needing to learn this wide breadth of things before you get started, because you might have to rely on all of these different features that you can get up and running right away. And as you run into these more complex situations, these more application specific situations, you can you can find out and do the learning then. That is one of the founding principles of the Rails framework is that it allows you to start doing doing productive things and building usable products without having to dig too deeply into all web concepts right away. And that is a really good way to go about it. For example, when I became interested in DevOps and infrastructure, which was like pretty early on in my career after having graduated bootcamp, but because I didn't have a direction to understand what is important and what I need to learn, that it made it almost impossible to get started. That's not to mention the fact that I didn't have the dedicated time required to learn something that big and that new. But what made it eventually accessible to me is the fact that folks on Mission Control, Joe Ferris specifically with help of other developers on the team, had created a sort of opinionated way to build up infrastructure on AWS required 
required to deploy a Rails application. It's a bunch of open source Terraform modules that you apply in a certain way so that you have everything you need. I came into this team very similarly to using Rails to get into web development. I just need to start by understanding how to use Flight Deck the way it is intended, right? I need to learn how to use each of the Terraform module. And where deeper learning was happening is when clients diverge from the path. And that's like, I'll learn it when I need it. So then when I need it is when I need to modify the existing opinion of Flight Deck to fit into a specific situation. So I think with Rails too, it's like, if I have a use case to use triggers, I will learn to use triggers, but I don't need it right away. So yeah, you can look at it as like Rails sometimes makes it harder to become aware of or learn certain things, but it likely just means you don't need it. So the Flight Deck project from Mission Control seems like another one of many projects in the development space that have been influenced by Rails in that kind of 80-20. You're probably not going to need it for most situations, giving you a set of sensible defaults. I agree. In the same way that Rails is opinionated, but it's very customizable, Flydeck is built on that same principle. It's opinionated so you can get started, but it is customizable if you need something more advanced or complex. And as someone new coming into a different problem domain or a different space that you hadn't had a lot of experience in before, something like Rails or Flight Deck or any of these other things, Create React App, that really narrows the scope of what you have to learn when you're in this new place. And it can kind of give you a little bit of direction too, like here are the things that we think are important and here are the things that you should learn first. So I know that there are many features of databases that I've never come across or heard of because I am focused so much on the application layer. And I've never really had to reach for database triggers because I've had active record callbacks. I can operate on pretty much anything that I'm going to need most applications to be able to do. I'm going to be able to live mostly inside of active record and handle all of that at the application layer. I will, however, take the time for indices and foreign key constraints. <laughs> though those have crossed the threshold in my mind of things to understand a little bit more beyond just Rails setting it up so that I know that I'm using Rails correctly for the current situation. Yeah, but those are also things that Rails has helped you do, but it also sets it up as important things because the migration DSL does handle it, right? It forces you to think about them, even though it makes it easy to manage. That's a really good point. I wonder if the attention that I've paid to indices and foreign key constraints is super influenced by how available and spoken about those are by the framework. Should we wrap it up? Yeah, let's do it. For next episode, we're going to read all of Active Record Validations, chapters one through eight. If you have feedback or constructive compliments, we can be reached on Twitter at underscore tightly coupled and on Mastodon at tightly coupled at ruby.social or email us at tightlycoupled.dev at gmail.com. Show notes can be found in your podcast player of choice or at tightlycoupled.com. See you next time. Bye. Okay. Dot, can you please sit down? Yeah, you're going to take my headphones with you. Ah! <laughs> I need this cord. <laughs> Thank you, dog. So cute. Stupid dog.